Hey everybody and welcome once again to The Goods, a film podcast. I've got Dan here with me today. Hey Brian. And yes, I am Brian. And we're bringing you discussion on another motion picture. It's our first episode in a bit that it's just you and me. Our last two episodes we had guests on. That's right. So it's back to the core two. The movie that we will be covering today is A Bucket of Blood, directed by Roger Corman. It's from 1959. We've been talking, Dan and I, recently about the concept of theme months. Would it be fun? Would it make sense to have a theme that lasts for the entire month? And I would say that in the past month, we have sort of stumbled into that method because many of our films this month share a common theme, I would say. Uh, We kind of are dealing with a recurrence of sad virgin losers in these movies. People who struggle with their love lives. I think in the online vernacular these days, they call it incel, involuntarily celibate. That's fair. It's a term I hesitate to use just because of uh, glass houses, but I think it is apt in these cases, especially in my picks this month. But I, I think it comes up in things like The Apartment as well. Agreed. I will note that the movie we're talking about today was originally going to be a fill-in. I was thinking of featuring it in an episode later on. Then there was talk that we were going to have Nate on. And then there was talk that maybe he wasn't going to be able to come when he said he was going to. But then he did. So we had some shuffling around. And this one kind of got pulled from the back burner. Pulled forward and prepped for an episode. And so now it's here. Uh, So some of the commonalities. The fact that we're covering similar movies all at once was not purely by design. There was some happenstance involved. Also interesting that with the exclusion of last week's episode, which was the Rock of Fire explosion documentary, the previous two episodes, DOA came out in 1949 or 1950. The Apartment came out in 1960. This movie came out in 1959. And all shot in black and white. And all have at least some elements of noir and shadows and stuff yes we've got some older films on our docket lately so dan has pitched some different films for this coming month and we'll dig into those at uh, the end here today but trust that we will return to our spirit of variety but first we're going to dig into this one here today a bucket of blood this is a movie that had kind of existed on the periphery of my consciousness for a long time because it's public domain, again, just like DOA. And it shows up on many a bargain bin DVD variety pack. But the title is misleading. I read A Bucket of Blood. I didn't really know what that was about. And I just never really got around to reading more into it. It just sounds like a generic horror title. But then, in 2019, I came across a mannequin at Goodwill. 
and I purchased this mannequin. Then a few days later, they put out like a dozen more mannequins on the floor. So just a whole bumper crop of mannequins. And I posted on Facebook that I'd come across all these mannequins and some interested parties contacted me asking about could they get a mannequin. And I am going to delve more into that story in a little while. But the essence of it is that I found myself with a couple mannequins on hand. And I produce a public access horror host series. This was round about episode 70. I needed to find something thematic to accompany scenes with mannequins. Because that's what I had to use. I thought, what's what's a fitting movie that'll involve mannequins or sculptures or something of that ilk? And I started going through documentation about the different public domain films that were available. And I come to find out that the misleadingly titled A Bucket of Blood is about sculpting and sculpture. It's really a horrible title for the movie. I mean, even when you told me that we were going to watch something called A Bucket of Blood, I was like, uh, all right. I guess we'll be watching that. I was figuring it would be one of those splatterfest type movies where, I don't know, there's just lots of gratuitous, bloody murder and cheap SFX, but it's definitely something very different. Right. I read that the Spanish title is like El Ecuptor Loco or something, The Mad Sculptor, and that is a much better title. Yeah, I agree. I like that. That's a good that's a good title for this. Now, this movie was made by Roger Corman and written by Charles Griffith. Roger Corman is a very prolific producer and director of B-movies. He's able to do a lot with a little and crank out movies with not a whole lot of budget. And I'd say he's definitely established a niche for himself. He's had a very long career. Is he still alive? Do we know? Yeah, he's still alive. Born in 1926, so he's 94 years old. Wow. Known as the Pope of Pop Cinema, apparently. <laughs> but one of Roger Corman's best-known contributions to pop culture is The Little Shop of Horrors, the original one. If you're thinking Rick Moranis, think earlier. Now, an interesting thing about A Bucket of Blood was that it was shot in five days... They had the sets available for two more days. And so in those two days, Corman got people together again and cranked out Little Shop of Horrors. So I have a question on this. Little Shop of Horrors, I've never seen. It's one of my blind spots, one of my many blind spots in B-movie cinema history. So I I am I did know there was I think it's the 80s that the Mick, Rick Moranis version came out, right? Is that one a musical? Yes. So here is the story of Little Shop. Roger Corman shot the original film over the course of 2 days. It is the film debut of Jack Nicholson. So that's one reason that it has become better known than Bucket of Blood. But the big reason is because of the success of its later adaptations. So in the 80s, Ashman and Mankin wrote a musical adaptation of Little Shop of Horrors. This songwriting team would, of course, go on to 
kind of spearhead the Disney Renaissance. They did the music for Little Mermaid, uh, Beauty and the Beast. They were working on Aladdin when Ashman died. He was the lyricist. He was more than that, too. He was like one of the chief creative visionaries of the the Disney Renaissance. There are plenty of YouTube videos of him working with voice performers and like coaching them on what the character really should be like and how you should do different stuff. So, yeah, he's a pretty interesting guy. Right. And then, of course, Mencken would persist. I mean, he was writing songs for Wreck-It Ralph 2 in 2019. He worked on Enchanted. He's obviously still stirring pots at Disney. But, uh, I mean, he was at the helm throughout a lot of the 90s movies. Like, he did a lot of work on Hercules. Let's not forget, he wrote the score for a Broadway adaptation of A Christmas Carol, which was subsequently made into a 2004 TV movie, which we then uh, discussed only about a month ago. Exactly right. We stan Alan Menken here on this podcast. (laughs) So much that we both gave it a 5 out of (laughs) 8. But I do think his connection to Hercules is interesting because both Little Shop of Horrors and Hercules feature a Greek chorus of sassy black women. Interesting. So that really seemed to be a concept that Alan Menken was all in on. (laughs) And we're not just talking about Little Shop of Horrors to blow smoke here. If you are familiar with that story, you will find many parallels with the story of A Bucket of Blood. The plots are almost identical. You've got a small business with a group of three employees, one male boss, a female employee, and a male employee. Uh, The protagonist is a dweeb, and he strikes upon a bloody Faustian path to success, which he pursues mostly to impress his female co-worker, and then he has everything collapse in the end. Which one is Jack Nicholson? So in Little Shop of Horrors, Jack Nicholson plays a somewhat minor role. There is a character who is a sadistic dentist. The dentist is played by Steve Martin in the 80s version. At one point, a masochistic patient goes to the sadistic dentist and foils his aims because obviously a masochist enjoys pain and a sadist enjoys inflicting suffering and they're at cross purposes and that's played for humor in both versions in the original movie jack nicholson is the masochist gotcha so he's there to be tortured by the dentist and it's a pretty short part but jack nicholson would work with roger corman again he's in a movie called the terror which is sort of a horror movie it's got a really confusing plot because it had like five different directors trying to make it into a movie and they kept like sending the unfinished footage back and forth early on in his career nicholson definitely had collaborations with corman so even though he's only in the movie for a couple minutes obviously nicholson came to stardom later on and so all these bargain bin dvds of little shop have Nicholson prominently featured on the DVD case. If you did want to check out both of these movies as a double feature, it would be pretty easy to do because they both have very brisk run times. A Bucket of Blood is only 65 minutes long 
and Little Shop of Horrors is 72 minutes long. Added up, there's still only about, I don't know, one-sixth of our uh, High School Musical episode. But we will be, for the most part, dropping discussion of Little Shop here. I would say check it out. It's certainly established itself a little better in the zeitgeist. I don't know if you could call it that. It's just better known than Bucket of Blood. For one, I would say it's got a better title. Yeah, I would really say the title is a big part of that. Little Shop of Horrors is, you want to know what's the little shop, what are the horrors, what happens. Bucket of Blood doesn't cultivate the same intrigue. I really think the Mad Sculptor would have been a good one because people want to know what, what does the Mad Sculptor do? Why is he mad? A Bucket of Blood revolves around a character named Walter Paisley, and he's played by the actor Dick Miller, who would also pop up again in The Terror. This guy reminds me a lot of, like, Travis Bickle, or if you've ever seen King of Comedy. Have you, Dan, seen the movie King of Comedy? No, that's the Scorsese one that everyone compared to Joker, right? Right. So that's an interesting case, too, because, I mean, if you look at the pairing here of Little Shop of Horrors and A Bucket of Blood, and you look at the Scorsese pairing of Taxi Driver and King of Comedy, it's similar. Just in the vibe of, like, they make one movie that's about this lonely, angry dude, and then they follow it up with one that's basically exactly the same thing with some of the cosmetics changed. It's like you rip off the skin of a Billy Bob and you turn it into a Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> if you're picking up what I'm laying down. I am. You have a preference for one to the other. Or or at least one is the one that went on to fame. Oh, true. I was mostly just thinking that it was two two things with minor changes. But you're right that that one is the better known incarnation because certainly more people talk about taxi driver if you're really in the know that's when you start throwing king of comedy into the discussion but they really are very similar films we have this character walter paisley and he works as a busboy at a cafe called the yellow door which is frequented by beatniks this is 1959 after all so what had been your exposure to beatniks dan so i've read much of is it called on the road i think it's jack kerouac is that the name of the guy which is like uh -huh. the, the beatnik manifesto of sorts at least that's how i've heard it described not too much i mean i know the stereotype the snapping the yeah play it cool sister way of talking but that's about it the doctor is real in yeah, the the sunglasses and the beret. I was glad we got a beret on one of the beatniks in this. Yep, I know Gilligan actor Bob Denver. Before he was Gilligan, he played a character called Maynard G. Krebs, who was a well-known beatnik in pop culture mm. and a, a partial inspiration of Shaggy on Scooby-Doo. Uh. But this cafe, this is the hip and happening beatnik hangout spot. And so they're always coming in to listen to poetry, and Walter is kind of in the background, cleaning off the tables. Walter also pines after his beautiful co-worker Carla, and he longs to be accepted by the hip beatniks who are always hanging out there. As embodied by this guy who's kind of their leader, 
who is this cool bearded poet named Maxwell Brock. Some other important characters, we have the boss at the cafe, a guy named Leonard, who is the one wearing the beret that you mentioned. And I kind of got the vibe that he was dating Carla, although it was never really confirmed. They spent a lot of time together. Agreed. The movie kicks off with Maxwell Brock reading a poem. And the gist of the poem is that the only thing that matters in the universe is art. He says, I shall talk to you of art, for there is nothing else to talk about. There's a lot of great lines in this poem. He says, life is an obscure hobo bumming a ride on the omnibus of art. All that is not art is graham crackers. Let it crumble to feed the artist. What did you get out of this poem or any of the poems that pop up in the movie? I think they really add to the flavor. I think one of the things that makes this movie work is that it is so specifically about this beat culture. This Maxwell Brock character played by Julian Burton, he's a real scene stealer. He's the subject of a lot of the film's satire. And I really I really enjoyed it when he would go on these poetic rants. It actually made me think of Network a little bit where they would just go off onto these monologues about the nature of media, the nature of thought, things like that. And similarly here, I thought it, I thought it was good. Um, I had a couple of other interesting observations about this opening scene. One is that I found from the start and repeatedly throughout the movie that the musical soundtrack and the soundtrack in general is very jarring. It's almost like mind rattling. And they definitely call attention to it. They cut back and forth between the saxophonist who's playing kind of this bebop, detached, not very tuneful little riff on top of him laying down his beat poetry. And it's kind of very striking and kind of puts you on edge from the start. Yeah, very stylistic. And the music is is loud. It's It really is like you're in a loud cafe. Uh, eventually we find out that since Walter is intent on impressing these cool bohemians all around him, he has purchased some clay and he's decided that he is going to make a sculpture and hopefully win them over that way by kind of coming out among them as an artist. So he heads back to his dingy apartment with his clay and he attempts to sculpt a bust of Carla from... Uh, picture that he's got to study from and this scene is put together in a compelling way because he's sitting there struggling with his sculpture and suddenly he hears the yowls of his landlady's lost cat and somehow this cat has become trapped in the wall and i wondered if this was like a reference to the poe story the black cat Roger Corman would go on to make a series of Poe films. And I wondered if this was in his mind when he set up this scene. There's a lot of building tension. Obviously, the sculpture is not going the way Walter is hoping. Uh, We haven't really introduced Walter's mannerisms yet, but he is shy, awkward. Possibly he's intellectually disabled. He's got kind of a hunched stature about him, and he's always kind of, I don't know, like almost creeping around. It's not quite that. Dick Miller, 
definitely does a good job of conveying that this is not necessarily an intrinsically bad dude, but certainly an off-putting dude. And so he's finding he can't just magically be an artist by willing it. But the cat is screeching in the wall. Walter has this bare, lone light bulb hanging down from a cord from the ceiling. And he's got a kettle boiling on the stove. So there's just this building sense of anxiety in this scene. And finally, Walter jumps up and he grabs a knife to hopefully free the cat from the wall. But he only manages to just completely skewer the cat by sticking the knife into the wall. Parasite style. So now he's got this dead cat with a knife run through it. And Walter thinks back on Brock's poem about how all of the world exists as raw materials for the artist. And the most important thing is to make art. And from this, Walter forms a twisted interpretation and decides to take the body of the cat and coat it in clay. So the next morning, he takes this sculpture into work at the Yellow Door Cafe. And surprisingly, Carla is into it. She is impressed by this artwork of a clay-daubed cat with a knife still run through it. So I have a lot of thoughts on this cat and questions. One is, I I rewatched the scene. I think there's a little bit of Carla, you know, trying to give Walter a pat on the back. Oh, you did a good job. But it's also, she does seem to genuinely dig it. I don't know. I think we're going to talk about the quality of the production values. The quality of the sculptures really broke my immersion in this film because they are not very good. And I wasn't sure if A, that was the point that they were not good. B, if we were, it was supposed to look more grotesque and Baroque than it did. They talk about it being them being uh, sculptures being realistic. I don't know, but suffice it to say, just when we're talking about the cat right now, it's, I mean, it just looks like the shape of a cat, a sculpture. That's really with a knife out of it. That's really all there is to it. And I, I wasn't quite sure how to react to that. You're right. It's form dictating function or something. <laughs> it's clearly limited in terms of what the budget was able to realize. But in some ways, I think that quality adds to it in addition to other ways that it detracts. I think that's fair, yeah. And we'll, we'll analyze that a little more deeply when we dig into strengths and weaknesses. Sure. But Carla talks Leonard into exhibiting this cat sculpture in the cafe. And the beatniks dig it. They admire Walter's work and they start welcoming him into their circle. There's even a girl who expresses a crush on Walter. This is kind of a loopy, addict, hippie girl named Naolia. And she has a good line. She says, You've got a hot light bulb inside of you, and I want to be warmed by it. Walter kind of rebuffs her, but Naolia gives him a vial of something to remember her by. And he walks home with like this little test tube in his pocket. And he gets followed by Lou who is a regular at the cafe. Back at Walter's apartment, Lou reveals that he is an undercover cop 
who has been spending the first half of the movie investigating the drug scene. I mean, I guess it's a pretty good approach, you know. Indoctrinate yourself with the beatniks, and you're liable to find where they're getting their stuff. But Lou says that this vial that Naolia handed to Walter is heroin. And so he's going to take the hapless Walter in for receiving drugs, even though Walter is not a hip guy. He didn't know what this stuff was, but he's got it now, and that's possession, and now he's under arrest. Walter responds reflexively. He happens to be holding a frying pan at the time. On reflex, he swings the frying pan and cracks Lou on the head, instantly killing him. Now, this is technically where the bucket of blood from the title comes in, because there is a moment where Lou is lying there dead and Walter sets down a bucket to catch the blood. But still, bad yeah, title. I liked this this image. This was a creepy image. You have, I, th- I don't know if it was like the ceiling or like a shelf up high or something, but he's, he's h- hanging high in the frame and you see a single arm dangling and you hear blood drips and it's pretty unsettling. This is like the moment killing a cat is a messed up thing and like a pretty evil thing, but it was clearly an accident. And I don't know, like he hadn't quite fully stumbled off the deep end at that point for me. But when you have (laughs) killed a person and are hanging their corpse up in the, uh, your, your rafters. Now I think now we're kind of in the thick of it. That's true, and this scene, while the bucket is filling up with the blood, is important because this is when Walter has his epiphany, kind of Sweeney Todd style, that now he's going to start making his sculptures of people. We see a scene back at the cafe where Leonard, the boss, has been receiving offers to buy the cat sculpture. As part of the kind of running commentary on beatniks, we see some older people who are outside of the subculture, kind of affluent older folks who want to show that they're hip and in touch with the art world by associating with these beatniks and buying their produced art. And so some of these fat cats are making offers on the sculpture and the amount of money that they're offering is climbing. First it's $100, and then it's $300. So, oh, I'll give you $500 if you give me exclusive access to the artist's next piece. Leonard, at this point, accidentally knocks the cat sculpture off the table, and it cracks, revealing, obviously, that there's fur underneath. So now Leonard knows how it is that Walter has suddenly become, I guess, an art prodigy. He knows Walter's method, but these money offers are coming in. And so Leonard hesitates to confront Walter because he sees this as a possible boon that he's going to start making money off of Walter's quote-unquote artistic endeavors. And from this point on in the movie, Leonard has these great horrified reactions to everything that Walter does because... He knows Walter's secret, but he can't talk about it because he wants to make money. Yeah, this character, Leonard, I agree that it was funny. I wanted the movie to lean even more into it, though, because there's obviously the tension in him egging him on, but also aware of what's actually going on. 
and I wanted even more of it. Like I wanted him to push Walter even further for the higher, the bigger buck and be even more depraved in it. But I agree that that was, that was a pretty funny dynamic, a pretty satirical, compelling dynamic. Walter comes into work the next day, having just killed a cop, and he announces that he's created his newest work. So his last sculpture was titled Dead Cat. He says that his new sculpture is called Murdered Man. And we get this horrified double take from Leonard. Walter invites Leonard and Carla to the unveiling back at his apartment. And it's this surreal moment with this really strange looking sculpture with a face just split down the middle that apparently has Lou's body inside it. I know that the takeaway is supposed to be that Walter didn't actually create anything here. He didn't sculpt it himself. He just put clay on top. I gotta say, it must have been tough to get the clay layered and structured in such a way that this this uh, this dead body stood up. I, I was uh, I was impressed at his his uh, dexterity in applying clay uniformly. Yeah, there's some engineering at work here. It's structurally sound. I think Walter missed his calling as a civil engineer. Leonard and Carla behold this horrific sculpture, but both of them are struck by its artistry. Like, instantly they know that this thing is going to play well with the art crowd, somehow. I think there's some suspension of disbelief here, but it may also be part of the commentary on art is whatever the artistic types say is in. Yeah, I want to spend some time later talking about who really is at the uh, sharp end of these barbs. But I agree that there's definitely something going on here where they're, this is in some way denigrating the idea of like art snobs, beatniks, the intelligentsia or whatever that word is, who determine what is great art and what is not great art. Back at the cafe... Walter's profile is rising. He's getting more embraced by the hip beatniks, who, in addition to Maxwell Brock, include this pair of stoners who are always there commenting on the events around them. They're kind of the C-3PO and R2-D2. I didn't know how much I would love the stoner beatnik peanut gallery comedy relief character. I really love these guys. I wanted even more. I'm, I want more movies with that have these two types of characters. I really enjoyed them. But the one bohemian who is not won over by Walter's overnight transformation is Alice, who is a blonde model. And she seems unpopular with the other beatniks because she's pretty vain. They're like, oh, here's Alice, you know, jerking herself off at how much of a great artistic presence she is but she's she's rude to walter she isn't convinced that he's all that he claims to be which of course we already know so she's actually in the right but this turns off the other beatniks and obviously it frustrates and angers walter and humiliated by this snub walter ends up paying alice to model for him which is something that she had offered to do So she comes back to his place and strips down, at which point he strangles and sculpturizes her. 
because, of course, the beatnik said the next step for any great artist is you got to make a nude. This was, for me, one of the more visually striking moments of the film. I thought it was shot really cool, kind of noirish, where I take it there were considerations that you had to be very careful about showing any nudity. And it very artfully got around that. You see her disrobing and her figure in shadows. And then it kind of, the camera kind of cuts creatively. So you see her back and her shoulders framed. And that's where he brings out the scarf and strangles her with it. And I I thought that was a bit of visual bravura that I really enjoyed. And so another morning rolls around and Walter rolls his latest work into the cafe. And the beatniks are so won over by this full body nude, so-called, that Carla kisses him for it. And obviously this is what he's been going for all along. This is the sign that he is in, he's done all the things that he wants to do. And Maxwell Brock arranges to throw a party at the cafe dedicated to Walter's so-called talent that seems to be blooming. I'll bring Little Shop of Horrors back into the discussion for a moment, just to highlight the parallels in the story there. So you said you have not seen Little Shop, right? In any incarnation? Correct. Okay, so in that story, you've got this dweeby florist employee who discovers a strange variety of Venus flytrap, and he finds out that if you feed it blood, human blood, it blooms and grows and gets more impressive. So over the course of the story, he is surreptitiously killing people to feed to the plant, and it's bringing him fame and renown. Oh, interesting. So it's like, oh, as I commit violent acts, I'm being embraced by the cool successful people, so I gotta keep doing it, otherwise I'll be a nobody again. Sure enough, that's what's happening here in Bucket of Blood. It's kind of the Sweeney Todd template, too. You brought that one up earlier. I definitely thought of that one a lot. For sure. There's just something about using human meat as your product (laughs) and suddenly becoming successful that has a narrative resonance. I agree. I want to spend some time thinking about the implications of that, for, for sure. But Brock throws this party at the cafe, and this is always the image that's on the DVD cases for Bucket of Blood, because Walter is sitting on a throne in the middle of the cafe and he has this kind of jughead crown on his head like a floppy burger king crown and he's holding a toilet plunger or something like a scepter everybody's singing his praises and maxwell brock recites this poem in walter's honor and it talks about walter paisley is born You and I know that Walter Paisley is born, but the world doesn't know that Walter Paisley is born. There's a lot of focus on birth and death in this, which, again, I think gets to the almost elemental consideration of art and how we relate to art and what it costs us to create and stuff. I enjoyed the topic of birth and being born comes up multiple times and how that plays in with the exact opposite occurring. It's pretty fascinating Yeah, it's like you need to destroy one thing to create another. Right, I mean, it literalizes the idea that we put something of ourselves or something of the world into the things that we create. And in this case, obviously, he's not putting himself in it, he's putting other people in it. But it takes that at its most literal and macabre interpretation 
that kind of drives this questioning of the purpose of art and does it really cost more? Does it really bring us the value that we actually need? Um, I think that this in some ways is satirizing both high art and art snobs, but I think Corman was also taking a jab at himself. Like he's a little bit of the Walter character here. He's the guy who made the B movies that were all violent and stuff and trying to fit in with like the, you know, acclaimed Oscar winning directors. I think there's some of that in there too. Oh, that's astute. I think that's a great point. But as this party is going on, Walter is getting drunker and drunker. And so we see more of Leonard's humorous panic because he's got this growing anxiety that Walter is going to blab about how he's actually been making these sculptures. So Leonard wants to get Walter out of there before he talks. But before he staggers off into the night, Walter does make a speech to the assembled beatniks about all the things that he's going to sculpt in the future. And this for me was another moment when the script really sparkled. I should have pulled an excerpt but he talks about how he's going to, like, sculpt kings and peasants, celebrities and nobodies, and just all the art that lies ahead from him. Yeah, it's it's a moment of dramatic irony because to the crowd, it's like a generic artistic ambition. But to us, <laughs> we're, the, the viewer knows, is seeing this as potential murders and assassinations and stuff, and it's... It's got a resonance to it in this moment, I completely agree. But Walter staggers out into the night, and the impact and significance of his words suddenly dawn on him. That, in fact, to keep up his cachet with the beatniks is going to mean that he will have to keep murdering people. Because he needs the raw material for his art. I really related to this, well, maybe not really related to this, but I can say, as someone who's had their fair share of tipsy nights... That sometimes the conclusions you draw uh, a little after midnight, a few beers in, is not necessarily the uh, the correct conclusion about where your life should go, about what must be done. Well, relating to this movie is going to be a common theme, so no no shame at all <laughs> in that. It, it's a relatable film. Walter stumbles across a construction worker who is working alone in the middle of the night for some reason. <laughs> I don't know why he doesn't have anybody with him or, or why he's working such late hours. But he's standing there at his miter saw that's on, you know, an arm that swings down. And Walter grabs him and beheads him with the saw. <laughs> one thought on that. That's a good point how he's working on, on his own. It, it reminds me of something. One of my good friends is an engineer. And he taught me a rule of thumb that I had never really thought about but totally makes sense which is that contracting companies and construction companies, you you work on re in residential areas during the day and commercial and industrial areas at night because people go away to school and their jobs during the day. So that's when you can work on residential stuff during the day. And then people go home for the evenings. So that's when you can work on the stores and the industrial buildings and everything. So I would say this was like near the cafe it could have been an office building or something. I, I, I buy as plausible that someone was working there. Why he was by himself, I don't know. But I could see someone working in the middle of the night. That's interesting. Yeah, that makes sense. So another morning dawns. And Walter reports into work with yet another sculpture. <laughs> he, 
he unveils his quote-unquote bust to Leonard, who is horrified again. It's this gruesome, severed head screaming. <laughs> that was my favorite Leonard reaction. I would say the most visually striking of the sculptures. Yeah. Finally, Leonard puts together that he's going to need to bring this to an end somehow. He can't keep aiding and abetting and tacitly encouraging Walter's murder spree. So he announces that the Yellow Door is going to have a gallery show featuring all of Walter's sculptures. So I wanted to ask you on this one. I I didn't quite follow this train of thought here. I think this is when I was saying I wanted a little more from, from Leonard's character, like him... Was he at this point simply trying to expose Walter or was he trying to cash in one last time before Walter really goes down? Well, there's a couple times in the movie where Leonard is saying, hey, you know, this stuff that you've made so far, that's great. But how about you do some freeform stuff? You know, move away from the realism (laughs) and maybe try something new. And all the other beatniks of course, say, no, this is what works for Walter. This is what he needs to pursue. So there are times where we get hints of Leonard's guilt and that he's really trying to steer Walter away from what he's been doing. I think in Leonard's mind, having this show will give Walter a sense of culmination and get him some money and hopefully succeed in steering him away from what he's been doing. Although... I don't really see that as following from that logic, because if this is what makes him money, why not just keep doing it? Yeah, I don't know. That was not 100% clear to me. I was I was trying to, to see where Leonard was going with this. But ahead of this featured show, Walter takes Carla aside outside the gallery, and he proposes to her, which, you know, is jumping the gun a little bit. Yeah, I was really surprised. I thought it was just going to be, you know, I'd like to take you out sometime or something. But no, he goes straight straight to the marriage proposal. Let's live together forever. So probably you should have pumped the brakes a little bit on this. <laughs> Either way, though, she shuts him down. I think one of the morals of this story is that people can love your content, but not love you. And she says that kiss that she gave him was for your sculpture. Like, as a token for creating a work of art, she kissed him, but there wasn't anything else behind it. I was thinking of groupies at, like, a when you go to concerts, there's the, there's the people who are crazy. And we were just talking about groupies last week with uh, the guy who invented Rock Fire Explosion, and he managed to make it actually work, but I guess he's, he's not exactly the same as Walter. No one knows that Aaron Fector is born. <laughs> Man, maybe there's some dark secrets behind the animatronics. I know there's a lot of horror themed around that, but it's making me wonder if maybe Aaron Fector has something hiding in that warehouse that uh, he, he doesn't want the world to know about. So Walter is heartbroken and he slinks back to his gallery show. And I like the exchange that he has here with Maxwell Brock, the cool poet, because Brock slaps him on the back and says, well, man, you could make you know, $20,000 from this show. And Walter says, wait a minute, I thought you were, you know, above materialism. I thought it was all about the art for you. Brock says, yeah, man, but 20 thou? Or something (laughs) like that. So maybe this artist is not as high-minded as he's claimed to be. I love this trope. I've seen it in a lot of things of 
the iconoclastic creative who rejects all quantitative success metrics until the digits start adding up. And then all of a sudden, it might be worth it. So there's this book I read called How I Became a Famous Novelist by Steve Healy. I read it maybe, man, almost 10 years ago at this point. And that is essentially the exact story of what I just described, fleshed out to its fullest extent. And it always makes me laugh, and but also think, because it really makes you start to wonder. It's obviously on the mind of this movie. Like, what's the purpose of creating? What's the purpose of art? What's the end game for that? At this point, Carla discovers, like, one of the clay fingers on Alice's sculpture is scraping away and she notices that there's an actual finger under there and she confronts Walter about it. She's like, what? There's a, there's a body stuck in the sculpture. And Walter essentially says, yeah, I know. Like he's never actually denied what he's been doing. <laughs> he's like, yeah, I'm making them immortal and I can make you immortal too. This was an, I agree. This was like an odd moment where, <laughs> I don't know if at this point he had completely given up on her, but you'd think he would have put two and two together that admitting that everything he's done has just been a murderous spree might not be the way to her heart. But I guess he's he's kind of past the brink and is ready to kill Carla too. Right. So now it's time for the mob with torches and pitchforks to chase the monster because everybody forms a posse and chases Walter through the night now that his secret is finally revealed. And we get another good scene of Walter running through the night and we get kind of his interior monologue because he's being haunted by the voices of his victims. And there's this good line that is probably from the Lou actor, the murdered man. And he says, he can't hide from us just because we're in clay and he isn't. And the delivery of that really creeps me out. But Walter runs back to his apartment And he kind of declares that he's going to hide where they'll never find me. And apparently he covers himself in the clay. And he, like, makes a sculpture of himself. At least that's what you think it's going to be. Although the special effect is not that effective. I had to go back and pull it up. There are, like, globs of stuff on his face. But he is not covered in clay. Not by a long shot. No, but the mob breaks into the apartment and they find a sort of grayish clay dabbled walter hanging in his closet and maxwell brock gets a line i guess he would have called it hanging man his greatest work and that's the end of a bucket of blood now i had mixed feelings about this final quote-unquote effect like on the one hand i think he should have been able to sculpt himself and had a better sculpture at the end but like the messiness of it almost plays to the movie's strengths and just shows how crazy he is by this point. I can buy that. I think it at minimum needed to be more obvious that he was consuming himself in his art. Like I didn't, I actually had a note that I was going to bring that up that wouldn't it have been a cool ending if he had put clay all over himself, not realizing that that was the intent of the shot. But I agree, like some sort of messy, ugly, lumpy hybrid version that isn't the quote-unquote realism of the other ones might have been a good kind of reflective of where, where this character ended up. Right. So full disclosure, the sculptures in this movie 
are mannequins that they tracked down that sort of were in the pose that they needed them to be. Interesting. So when they needed the actual actor to be a sculpture, pretty much all they could do was just throw some clay on him. Because obviously, they, you know, they'd been working for five days and they had two days left in which they needed to make a whole separate movie. So needed to keep things moving along. But absolutely, as we dissect what was strong and what was weak about this movie i think we're going to revisit this so you briefly mentioned a scene about this movie that you found relatable i would say aside from the murder spree which admittedly is a crucial element i found most of this movie to be pretty relatable interesting (laughs) i will expound on that so it's a little bit of a callback to our high school musical episode But I really found that this film paralleled my interactions with theater kids in high school, kind of existing on the periphery and wanting to be thought of as cool by hip theater kids. Specifically, Maxwell Brock reminds me a lot of a guy that I knew pretty much all throughout school, a guy named Zach Mott, who I I don't think you've uh, met I guess our listeners would not have either, but just a a tall guy who is kind of running with that crowd. Yeah, I don't know him. My wife and you were in the same high school class, so I have peripheral awareness of who he is. But Right, well, elementary class as well. Right, yeah. I think they did a good job of making this character in the movie seem like somebody Walter would look up to. He He's almost like a Socrates type. You know, he'll gives some deep thought and everybody will hang on his words. Yeah, I agree. He he's he was really compelling for me to watch both because he just has the charisma, you just want to keep watching him. Like he he's very plausible as someone who would win the hearts of the cafe goers. Uh but he also, you know, is seen I think it's important that it had that one moment with him where he gets dollar signs in his eyes and kind of cracks the exterior You know, artists, even the purest of artists, are still human creatures, too, and have wants and needs and want status symbols. And then he gets in that final quip at the end, Hanging Man, his greatest work, which is a good line to go out on. Now, kind of in the same way that the last movie we featured, Rock of Fire Explosion, sent my brother on a mission. In a way, this movie did that for me. So I mentioned that in February of 2019, I was looking for a mannequin-themed movie that I could feature on my public access show and determine that this would be a good pick. Well, there's a little more to that story, and I'm not going to go too far off the rails diving into the details, but in addition to paralleling my high school experience that of course occurred years and years before I ever saw this movie. It also kind of foreshadowed and kicked off a significant chapter of my life that followed it. So when I came across this stack of mannequins at the Goodwill, it was Valentine's day. Just by coincidence, the person who reached out to me saying that she wanted a mannequin was this girl that I already had a big crush on. She said, I I have to have a mannequin. Don't ask questions. Just bring me a mannequin. (laughs) Now, of course, this is something 
that already, I mean, pretty much anybody who tells me, bring me a mannequin, that's going to be appealing to me <laughs> immediately, intrinsically, anyway. But the fact that it was this woman, pretty much the only woman that I would say I've had a meet-cute with, we, both of us, attach significance to narratives. And this seemed narratively significant. The mannequin connection. That's right. And so we started talking. Again, bear in mind, it's, it's Valentine's Day. Um, and we're, we're talking, okay, when and where to do this mannequin handoff. So we arranged a time in March that I was going to bring this mannequin. There's nothing inherently romantic about a Craigslist drop-off. <laughs> but she says, oh, you know, you're going to have to drive this thing away. How about we get lunch? I was like, okay. And then she says, you know what? Come later in the day and we can get dinner. It's like, okay, okay. And then she said, you know what? There's a film festival that night. So let's, uh, let's, you know, we'll eat dinner and then we'll go to the movies. It's like, okay, okay. And so this thing was growing from a Craigslist drop off to dinner and a movie. I'll just say that things seemed to be going well in the moment when everything was transpiring. We did go and get drinks. And to my inexperienced mind, it seemed like things were leading somewhere. And ultimately, they did not. So it really can be just about the mannequin. For the sculpture. Yes, it can be for the sculpture. And so (laughs) both sides of watching this movie, I found uh, personal significance. That's that's a compelling story. It really does parallel this in some, some curious ways. But it also made me think of the social network, how... The Zuckerberg character, Jesse Eisenberg, it was all fueled by, well, according to the movie, not according to the reality, but was all fueled by that one girl that got away at that one dinner date or whatever it was. And I don't know. I mean, I, it is a compelling narrative. I, I agree. I mean, I could see in the moment how it would seem a romantic narrative. And then afterwards, there would be something kind of poetic and tragic about it. Well, now we've come to the time where we bring up things that are good about the movie that we are talking about strengths shining features that must be given their due first off i want to call out the script i think there's a lot of strong dialogue in this movie especially when people are delivering poems or speeches of other sorts especially thought brock's poem that opens the movie is a really excellent intro i agree as this movie was was going, like the first fifteen minutes, I was like looking up on like best ever list to see if this movie was ever has gone down as a masterpiece of sorts that just I had never heard of. I, I was really impressed, especially in this this opening bit. I said it, but I also quite liked Walter's speech about what he's going to sculpt next. I think they let themselves flex their poetry muscles at that point too. I also thought this movie felt ahead of its time in some ways. It really does feel like one of the Scorsese movies. A little bit like Taxi Driver, even more like King of Comedy. I think in the 70s, I mean, Scorsese in particular, but I think uh, Coppola and some others, around this kind of new wave of cinema, there was a lot of digging deep into the dark figures and what drives darkness in humanity. And I, I completely agree with you that this feels like a precursor to 
you know, mean streets and the conversation and all this stuff about how these dark impulses drive us to do things and how that can blow out of proportion. Obviously, Scorsese, there's a couple of good examples on that one. There's also plenty of dark humor here that had me laughing. We get scenes where the beatniks are just smugly congratulating each other on being awake. You might say woke AF. (laughs) Just the fact that they are artistic elevates them above the common crowd. But there was also some complexity in the way that the beatniks were portrayed. For instance, Brock and these stoner characters who are always there to be kind of a Greek chorus. They're, you know, they're open to other people joining their ranks. They're accepting of Walter coming into their circle. And they're not down with Alice's haughty attitude. So they're they're more than just one-dimensional. Yeah, I agree. They, they are still mostly ciphers for the kind of the themes of art. But I agree that... You get different tones from all of the different beatniks. That that does give a little bit of depth. You have the, the friendly stoner types who seem to be there mostly to have a good time. And you, you have the pretentious artiste. And you have the woman that the main character strives after who seems to be nice but kind of also has her own thing going on. And then you have the beret-wearing owner of the cafe. And it, it adds up to a colorful cast that I agree has a little more depth than it might appear on the surface. What else did you want to call out as a good thing? Well, going back to the the black comedy, I want to revisit one moment that made me laugh out loud as I was watching this. And that was when he called the sculpture dead cat and how it just became a recurring thing that he couldn't even come up with interesting titles for it. He just said what it was. And that was the title. I thought that was pretty good. And I, so I watched this the same day as I watched the movie Brief Encounter, which is a David Lean film, a British romance that I think is a masterpiece. I, I, I thought it was amazing. But that movie has some of the most gorgeous black and white cinematography I've ever seen. And I would say this movie suffered probably in my head just because I watched it right on the tails of uh, something else where, you know, I'm glad it was shot in black and white. It definitely made the noirish moments work. I guess this is both a good thing and a not so good thing. Sorry, I'm kind of talking in circles here. But I was glad that it was shot shot in black and white, even if it did come right on the tails of me watching a superior example of of the art form. You know, it is it still is a B movie and it's it's that has its positives and its negatives. The cinematography is a highlight, I think, in just one moment of the movie, which is when that light bulb is swinging around in Walter's apartment and maybe it's even unintentional but he like swats at it and it's swinging around as all the tension is building with his kettle boiling and the cat howling in the wall yeah definitely and I thought that really highlighted the artistic aspect of the shadows and it was just one other layer of the anxiety I agree I think it definitely has its moments I also mentioned I really liked the murder of Alice, that whole scene, I thought was was very well framed and shot. I have one last thing I want to call out that I really liked about this movie. Very specific thing. I loved when the beatniks were talking about food and all of the weird things they're eating. I just wanted more of them like 
I don't know, it's kind of a precursor to diet fads of the later day. And this is where I should admit, I don't think I've ever admitted on air, I tend to eat vegetarian and whole food plant-based. And so I felt like it was a well-deserved ribbing of people who eat such ways, talk about flaxseed and all, all this other stuff. That was That was amusing to me. Oh, totally. And that's another point where it really seemed like they were making fun of 2010s hipsters and not 1950s beatniks. Right. You know, in addition to the, I'm so glad I'm awake, there is this scene where Maxwell Brock is sitting down to his egg white omelet and he's berating Carla and the stoners for like not having the right kind of honey or wheat germ or whatever kind of thing is supposed to go on top of the egg white. I I just got the sense of whether it was Roger Corman or the the writer Charles Griffith just going to a cafe themselves and seeing the menu and hearing people talk about these things and kind of grating their teeth a little bit and writing an exaggerated version of what they heard into the script into the movie. What about some things that were not so good? So, one complaint I have about this movie this movie is very much a satire and a lot of satires for me aren't necessarily favorites I can admire them and and appreciate them but the fact that satires usually have unlikable people doing unlikable things to make fun of some concept or scene or something it's difficult for me to find someone to latch on to as like my emotionally connect with I guess And that was a little bit of the case here. It wasn't the worst example of this happening because you still are kind of invested in the the arc that Walter's going to go through. But I guess overall, my feeling was at an admiring distance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, it's not the beatniks killing people in this movie. (laughs) So they could be worse. For sure, yeah. Yeah, some of my complaints are just things that if they had been done differently, would have served the movie better. We already mentioned that the title is really weak and tells you nothing about what the film is about. It's like, just just give me something. Even if it's something simple like The Mad Sculptor, that would suffice. For a long time, I got this confused with another movie, Vincent Price's Theater of Blood. But in that case, the title serves the movie better because it's about like a serial killer who commits Shakespeare-themed crimes i need to watch more b movies i didn't know that they all had these these interesting premises the advertising campaign for this movie was also weird there's like a poster with a comic strip on it and all the panels are like emphasizing the monster e horror of the movie like there's vampires and ghouls and stuff and it's almost like an adams family comic that's weird just that there's Yeah, there's like a cartoony, ghoulish nature to it. And I really found the movie to be more mature in some ways in tone than that. It's it's more of a dark character study than like a goofy horror movie. Yeah, oh, I mean, I completely agree with that. Um, The only moment that maybe dipped its toes in the supernatural were the voices in his head at the end as he was going insane but even that was very clearly just a man deranged driven to insanity by his desire to please the world and the woman 
and not like ghosts or anything like that. I, anything that suggested it was supernatural is definitely misleading marketing. Right. My other critique in that vein, which is maybe not a not so good thing, just I wish it were different thing. This movie deserves to be better known, I think. It gets overshadowed by Little Shop of Horrors. And I think that's mostly just because that movie had adaptations that brought it to wider knowledge. So I have an interesting thing to bring in here in that that realm in terms of this movie's reputation. So while we were chatting, I brought up Roger Corman's profile on the website They Shoot Pictures, Don't They? Which I have brought up many times. That is my go-to movie ranking list ahead of even IMDb and some of the other ones. I like it because it pulls in thousands and thousands of best lists from many sources, books, websites, other things, and has this algorithm where it ranks every movie that's appeared in one of those lists. So it's more than 20,000 movies are, are in that ranking. And uh, Roger Corman, this movie is the third highest in that ranking, but it's 4,114, which is not particularly high. The two above it on the list are 1964's The Mask of Red Death, which is 2,196, and The Intruder from 1962, which is number 2,992, but... I guess among critics, it places above Little Shop of Horrors, which is down in the 8,000s. Although, who knows how many lists are actually feeding into the data. It might be more noise than anything else at this point. But it does seem to be that the people who know Roger Corman's filmography well seem to put it in his upper tier of movies. Interesting. So Mask of the Red Death, that's part of the Poe series. He did a lot of stuff with Poe. One thing that I think is a point of criticism that we will share is that the low budget holds the movie back in some ways. Although I would say that adversity breeds innovation. You know, the sculptures don't really look like who they're supposed to be, but there's something about their garish nature that I still like. It's like they're still horrific, and I would buy that they would be weirdly captivating to an audience i think that's fair i don't know like my i guess my issue with that approach is that when carla and others see these sculptures other than leonard who knows their secret they don't react in like horror like aghast on their face that kind of turns into admiration it's just like immediately like a thoughtful appreciation which i found almost hilarious when it was just like this shape of a cat with a knife scratching their chins and looking at it thoughtfully like, Oh, there's some artistry here. I had trouble reconciling that. As I mentioned, it it kind of brought me out of the immersion a little bit. Did you have other digs you wanted to get out there? Well, the last kind of overarching complaint that I had. So we talked about this movie is short and the fact that this movie is short, very much mitigates what I'm about to say. It's not too much of a drag. But I feel like the rhythm of the story by about the halfway point, it needed a little more variety. It just kind of felt like we got the tempo of what it was going to be. And we knew that it was going to culminate in something, probably something bad for the main character. But it took a while to get there. I wanted one more twist in it to kind of 
twist the knife further. I, it just felt just a hair repetitive. But then again, at a 65-minute length, you can't really complain too much about that. It, it's a brisk movie. It goes goes by very quickly. Do you have a proposal for the turn the story might have taken? I didn't get around to thinking of something like that. And I know normally I come prepared with something like that. I wanted something along the lines of Sweeney Todd when I'm about to spoil Sweeney Todd, so turn it down if you have not seen that and intend to, when uh, it turns out that the street urchin is actually his long-lost wife. I know you obviously couldn't do anything quite like that, but something where it hurts Walter in some way or like makes him confront it. Something surprising or higher stakes. I don't know. I think it might be interesting if Leonard started giving him assignments. Oh. Saying, hey, you know what's big? Bring me, I don't know, the head of a rival gallery owner or something. Yeah, you could play that in with, you know, the the fat cat who's writing him checks. Maybe he stiffs him or something. I like that. That's good. Right. I, I like the idea of Leonard kind of suggesting types of art that he wants because he has targets he needs taken care of. That's an intriguing concept. So are we ready at this point? to judge sit in judgment two last thoughts before we do that one this is not neither a good thing nor a not so good thing but i feel like we should mention it given that we're talking about this film so in the mid 90s roger corman signed a deal with showtime to do a project called roger corman presents where he would produce and oversee a series of movies that were kind of in his style. But this is obviously much later in his career. This is a solid 40 years later after this, almost. A couple of those movies that he made ended up being remakes of his previous films. And one of which is in 1995, he did a Bucket of Blood remake. It also went by a couple other titles, but you can find about it, find it on Wikipedia. It's called A Bucket of Blood there, 1995 version. And I cannot, I spent about a half hour last night trying to trace this down. I want to see it because I, a couple of snippets I read is that it's basically the exact same story, but there's more depth. And I think because it was on Showtime, they could do more blood and gore and nudity and probably did some of that. I was intrigued enough by this, and I figure you probably would be too, that I just want to see what his take on it is 40 years in the future. 35 years in the future. I'd be curious to check it out. I think this story still has relevance. I mean, like I said, the the barbs that it targets at beatniks, I think could just as easily be leveled at hipsters. I mean, I think you can draw a straight line between the premise and themes of this and whichever YouTuber it was who made headlines by filming a dead body in a suicide forest. Right. I think it was either Logan Paul or Ryan Paul. I think it was Logan Paul. Jake Paul, I think is the other one. I don't know. Jake Whatever. Paul. One of okay. them. Yeah. One of the, one of those Pauls. <laughs> those Paul assholes. Um, the last bit I have. So I already mentioned that like the beatnik defining work is on the road. And there's a really famous quote, the mad people quote, and I rewrote it to fit. Walter. So you can imagine uh, some poet like uh, whatever the guy's name is, uh, Maxwell Brock, reading this at a cafe about Walter. Are you ready? Yes. 
The only people for me are the mad ones. The ones who are mad to live, mad to talk, mad to be saved, mad to stab cats, desirous of everything at the same time. The ones who never yawn or say a commonplace thing, but sculpt, 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 like fabulous murderous Michelangelo decapitating guillotines across the beatniks, and in the middle you see the hanged clay corpse. Okay, so just to be clear, you wrote that, right? That's not a direct excerpt from On the Road? I took the direct excerpt and rewrote portions of it. Okay. All right. I was going to say that's like super prophetic. <laughs> you even stabbed a cat. But then as it went on, it's like, okay. So this is uh, inspired by. Exactly. Sorry homage. if I did not make that clear. No, that's okay. What, what I, they might I, say, yeah. I like it. Nice pastiche there. Thank you. That's That's all I got. It's time now for our signature segment, Is It Good? It's what I'm sure you're all here for. You need to know. If you're going to track down this movie and watch it, you need to know, is that going to be worthwhile? So what do you say, Dan? So I think this movie is very much worth watching. I think it has a lot bubbling under the surface and a lot that encourages the viewer to interpret in their own terms. Um, It's a little meditation on the nature of art, but it's also just a compelling kind of gruesome, spiraling out of control story of a creator uh, who goes about creating the wrong way and gets his just desserts. But I also felt myself at a little bit of a distance to the whole thing uh, and a little turned off from some of the cheaper production values. But I still think it's very much worth watching. And I think it will give any viewer who enjoys thinking about the nature of art and the nature of creativity quite a bit to think about and reflect upon i'm going to give it a good a five out of eight i waffled between a five and a six and ended up on a high five out of eight good all right well i don't think it's going to be a surprise but this movie really resonated with me i watched it just to see if it would be fitting for my mannequin episode of my tv show Turned out it was really fitting. So I I put it into the episode after I watched it once, edited the video around it, and I burned the DVD of the episode, and I immediately watched it again. And then when the episode was on TV, I sat down and I watched it again. So to watch it for this podcast was either the fourth or the fifth time that I've seen it, and what can I say? Similar to the Rock of Fire doc, it shines a light on my experiences in some way. Have you seen Taxi Driver, Dan? No, I haven't. I have not seen Taxi Driver. Oh, man. Well, (laughs) so that one didn't speak to my own personal experience quite the same way. But when I watched it, I could totally see how someone would get inspired by that to go and try to kill Ronald Reagan. It's like, I can see how this would obsess someone and take over their mind and drive a reclusive person to some big act like that. So, A Bucket of Blood is on its way there. It really it really feels like a forerunner of something like that, like a King of Comedy or a Joker, but decades earlier. And I would say... If someone watches this movie, they'll get a little a little insight into... I don't really know how to say it. 
it, it resonated with me. And it's like any of these lonely person movies, it's like if you want to show it to people and be like, yeah, this this gets me. Just sit down and watch this, except because your social circle is small, you have no one to sit down and make watch the movie. Interesting. But I, I have you, Dan, and I have you, <laughs> listeners. And so go and watch A Bucket of Blood, which from me gets a seven and exceptionally good. It's held back by the budget constraints. Otherwise, I would slap an even higher rating on this. Thank you for bringing such a personal, meaningful selection. Would this place in your Brian's 100 film favorites if you were to make the list again today? Hmm. It might be on there somewhere. Probably low. I would say that the higher ranking entries make me feel good. This is not a this is not a feel good movie. No, not at all. But I do hold it in high regard. I know it's a little gauche to give really high rankings to your own picks. Uh, it's a trap I fall into again and again, but I can put a seven on this and not feel too bad. I mean, a part of the reason we have this podcast is to bring things that speak to us or make us think in some way. So I don't consider it unbecoming at all to praise the movies that you bring. I certainly have done the same. All right. And that brings to a close our awkward, loner, <laughs> lonely virgin month. And what is up next on our docket of themed months, Dan? Sure. So we are, as Brian said, going to make February 2021 our first ever themed month. I don't think we'll make every month a themed month because I think it's fun to bring in oddball picks here and there that don't quite fit into any mold. But I also think it's fun to take a little bit more of a deep dive. So so one of the things that uh, my wife has brought to me since we've been married is that one of her extended families really celebrates Groundhog Day. Like it's one of the biggest holidays of the year. Groundhog Day is February 2nd. So, you know, it's it's in February. Brian, I know that you love the, the movie Groundhog Day. And the movie Groundhog Day is the peak uh, iconic example of a specific story structure, the time loop. To the point that you can call movies that have time loops Groundhog Day style movies and everybody will know exactly what you mean. So we're going to make the month of February our time loop month, but we're not going to watch Groundhog Day. You've already written about that on our blog, earnthis.net. Maybe we can link to it at some point. Very good breakdown of that movie. I think it would be fun to, to look at some of the other corners of time loop movies. Some of them maybe odd or unheralded. I have a couple of fun picks up my sleeves, and I, I hope that you do too, Brian. The first movie we'll be watching is the 2020 movie Palm Springs. And this is my example of time loop as romantic comedy. I'm really curious to hear what you think of this. I think it'll be fun. It'll also be a good contrast to the last couple of movies we've seen we had the Vaporwave Sad Birthday documentary and then some black and white dramas. And I think this movie is very bright and uh, tonally different. I'm, gonna, I'm looking forward to watching it and I'm looking forward to talking with you. Yeah, it'll be good to jump to the present. I will say there's a very detailed time loop 
movie list on Wikipedia. Uh, You're welcome, of course, to go in cold, but if you take a look at that list, you might be able to speculate and have some fun guessing what movies we might capture as we take another time travel, not exactly time travel, uh, time manipulation, deep dive in the month ahead. That's right. I guess it does kind of play in with some of those. We had a, a spree of time travel related things. We had 12 Monkeys and Kate and Leopold back to back. So we, we have done a little bit of time manipulation, but this will be a little different. A very specific version of it that we will see multiple times, and, and I am excited about it. Well, stay tuned, listeners. Hope you join us again and again and again as we continue on with the goods. Thanks, everybody, for joining us today. See you soon. See you soon.